Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. If you have your Bible, open it to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. The Gospel of John, chapter 5. As we continue on through this Gospel, you will read into John, chapter 5 this week, because I know you're all following along uh, with eager anticipation as we work through this great Gospel uh, that uh, the Lord saw fit uh, for John, the disciple slash apostle, the evangelist, to leave for us to work through so that we would read these words, believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. Any prosecutor, if you think courtroom, okay, any prosecutor would love to have solid eyewitnesses to help give credibility to his case, the case against the accused. One is all right, two is better, three is great, especially when they all work together and corroborate. Any good defense attorney would like to have the same quality of witnesses to refute the prosecution's case and to cause reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury. What we're saying is that the witness plays an important role in the courtroom, especially in crimes considered to be capital offenses. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, it says in the law, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So back in the day of Moses, that law said, again, as I just read it, you had to have at least two witnesses to bring a charge against someone who had broken the law. In John chapter 5, as John was writing his gospel so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and thereby believing in him, we would have life in his name. John captured this moment in chapter 5 where Jesus, he's not on trial yet, but in a way he is on trial in the court of opinion, in the popular court of opinion, if you will, because people are starting, have, have taken notice of what he's doing. I mean, it's not just every day that somebody comes along and starts turning water into wine, right? It's not every day that someone comes along and heals the man that is lame. And so people are taking notice. And Jesus begins or continues in chapter five by telling people, defending himself, who he really is. And he presents for us in John chapter five, five witnesses that testify to who he is and they're all credible witnesses. So I want to start by reading in verse 31 uh, through the following. Jesus says in verse 31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony, testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and, that, and you do not believe me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the gospel of John. That every word of it is true and every word of it applies to our life. Father, I pray that as we hear these words that we would believe you would lead those of us in this room that have not trusted in Jesus, that they would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, they would find life, eternal life. Father, what we do not know, teach us. What we are not yet, make us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So why is Jesus having to present these witnesses? Well, you have to back up a few verses back further into chapter 5. The issue in chapter 5 is that Jesus worked a miracle on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest, not a day where anyone would do any work. Well, at least they wouldn't even, like if you lifted a finger, you're guilty. So Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath. And they didn't like the fact that Jesus was healing on the Sabbath. He broke the Sabbath. In fact, they accused him of breaking the Sabbath. If you look back in verse 18, he called God his Father and he made himself equal with God. So he's, they're, they're coming at him on two points. One, he's working on the Sabbath. Two, he's equated himself with God. And that's when Jesus begins to rebut their accusations or present them rather with the truth. And he gives them this truth back in verse 19. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. But whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. What Jesus begins to say here, or says, rather, is he begins to talk about his own authority. This is the authority of the Son of God. Jesus does what his Father does. Okay? The Father is his authority. He always looks to see what is the Father doing, that's what I'm going to do. He's listening, what is the Father saying, that's what I'm going to say. Not one time in Jesus' 33 years of ministry did he outstep God's boundary or transgress the line of what God wanted him to do. Not one time did he say no. Not one time did he not say something that God was already saying to his people. And so what Jesus does, Jesus does what the Father is doing, and he says what the Father is saying. So what we say here is that he is one with the Father in his actions, okay? The second claim to authority that Jesus presents is verse 21. He says, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. He is one with the Father in action. Second, he has the authority to give life. He's coming to give life. He's coming to give his life as a ransom. Therefore, by trusting and believing in him, we too have that life. Jesus has the authority to give that life. He's going to practically do that in John chapter 11 when he calls Lazarus from the grave. 
The third claim to authority that he makes is found just a little bit later on in verse 22. He says, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. There's the third claim to authority. He has the authority to judge. He, has, he is one with the father in action. He has authority to give life, and he has the authority to judge. He gives those three claims of authority, all from the father. His authority to do, his authority to work, his authority to give life, all comes from that special relationship he had with his father. When we look to the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and as we are adopted into the family through the blood of Christ, the grace and mercy of God, we can cry out to him, Abba, Father. We, when we cry out to him, that should be what our relationship is like with the Father as well, through Jesus Christ, the Son. When we hear about Jesus, when we hear these words about him and what he's doing, we have to remember that special relationship he had with the Father. And then we come to the word and we accept and trust this truth that is presented because he, Jesus, carries the authority of God the Father. That relationship between God the Father and God the Son is vital to the Christian faith. It's vital to our walk with Jesus. And we look at verse 20, the verbs that are there are present tense, showing that in that moment, in that very moment, as he begins to speak about his authority, and then down in verse 31, as he begins to present the witnesses to who he is, he's speaking as the Father is speaking, actively showing the Son what to do. So when we read the words of Jesus, we hear God the Father speaking. When he healed the lame man, well, that really pales in comparison to what Jesus will do in John chapter 11 and what will happen on the third day as Jesus comes back from the dead on the day of resurrection. When we read that Jesus is the one who gives life, we really begin to understand what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, where we were dead in our sins and in our trespasses, but God has made us alive with Christ, that he has brought us on a spiritual level from deadness in our sin to being alive together with Christ. That is a great miracle. That is a miracle of all miracles that we get to experience as we put our trust in Jesus, listen to what Jesus said in verse 24. Truly, truly, this is a true statement Jesus is making. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. What must I do to, to have eternal life? Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. How do we get born again? By believing in him whom he sent. There is the secret and the key to eternal life. In fact, Jesus continues, he does not come into judgment, the one who is believed, but has passed from death to life. It is only Jesus Christ that does that. And so when we come to verse 31 and we find his testimony, we find these witnesses. We look at verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is not saying and calling himself a liar. Friends, Jesus's testimony is true because he's always saying what the father's saying. What he's doing is referencing back to the law in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, where an accusation could not stand on one witness alone, especially if it was the one being accused. He had to have two or three witnesses to give evidence and give weight to the case. And so that's why he says, my testimony alone is not enough. Friends, anybody can claim to be divine. Anybody. You can claim to be divine if you want to. Postmodernism. I mean, we're all 
people all around us are living as if they're their own God. People claimed all the time in Jesus' day that they were divine. Caesar, Pharaoh. I mean, you go back in Scripture and you'll find them all over the place, even still today. There are always going to be false messiahs, antichrist. And they had appeared with similar message, messages as, uh, as, as the real messiah, but their messages would evoke people in a political sense, to a political movement, a social uprising. And in Jesus' day specifically, it would be to get the Jews uh, to, to rise up to get rid of Rome. But if you go back in the Old Testament... And you go back and you do a little research. Anytime the army of Israel rose up to defy an enemy without God's leading, without God's direction, and without God going before them, they lost. Bad. You see, it was never about a political movement. It was never about a social movement. Those who tried to make such claims and, and make the claims of messiahship, and, and they, they, get all, they all get slayed in battle, every single one of them throughout history. It was never meant to be a political movement, and so help me, church, let us never become a political movement. We are a movement of the kingdom of God. We are the people of God. We need to live like the people of God. Sure, we can vote like the people of God, but we are not a political movement. Our kingdom is not of this world. We are only passing through, okay? But Jesus, getting back to the text, Jesus is using the law to prove his point. Here's what he's saying. Don't just take my word for it. So let's get into these five witnesses. Who are those who will speak up on Jesus' behalf? The first one we come to, we find in verse 31. Excuse me, verse 32, verse 32 and 33. He references him in verse 33. You sent John. He's talking about John the Baptist, not John that wrote this gospel. It's a different John, John the baptizer. He's the prophet that would come. After so many years of silence, a man of God had come. And he was out in the wilderness proclaiming the kingdom of God was at hand, baptizing people. They flocked to John by the hundreds, if not the thousands. John was there. One of the first stories that you'll read in this very gospel, back in John chapter 1, is of that very John the baptizer. Go back to chapter 1, verse 6. Remember last, last week we were in verses 1 through 5, right? Here's verse 6. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Now, that light he's referencing there, of course, is Jesus Christ, that all would come to believe in that light. This man, he said in verse 6, was sent from God to testify, to witness, to proclaim the light. John the baptizer had mission credibility. He was sent from God. The one who sent Jesus also sent John. He has mission credibility. Verse 32 of that very chapter 1 of John. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. That is Jesus. This was at his baptism. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Witness number one. If you back up just to verse 29. 
And another moment, another time, another day, there Jesus is coming toward John. And what does John say in verse 29? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verses 35 and 36 of John chapter 1. Another day, John is standing with two of his disciples. He sees Jesus walking toward him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. John bore witness that Jesus was not only the Son of God, but also the Lamb of God who was to come and take away the sin of the world. And right after that last moment there in verses 35 and 36, those two disciples start following Jesus. John was convinced because the Father told John, God's word told him, was convinced that Jesus was and is the Messiah in this moment, and he made sure everybody knew about him. Jesus calls him a light that was a burning and shining lamp, a light that was shining. And he says about John, back in chapter 5, verse 35, he says, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You liked his message at first. It was good and true. And that's still very true today. People in the church love to hear those messages at first. And the more it becomes about the gospel, the more our sin gets called out, the more we think in our, our preacher stepping on our toes while it's really God bringing conviction because we know what the word says is true and we don't want to change our life. <gasps> Paul said people will leave the church because they want their ears tickled and get their... They're, uh, they're, they're, get the fancy speech, the stuff that's going to make them happy. That's what you see with John. He was a shining lamp. You were willing to rejoice, to celebrate that message for a while. You were excited. You heard the kingdom of God is at hand. But just like in John's day, people today still... We'll stay in the light for a time, but walk away. This is why a lot of churches are in decline. It's because that nominal Christian, the one that's not really complete, completely committed to following Christ and being his disciple, is walking away. Friends, John was divinely appointed. He was divinely appointed, a divinely appointed lamp, a divinely appointed light for a very specific time and a very specific purpose. Psalm 132, verse 17, God said, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. That lamp was John to come and shine light. To say, The kingdom of God is at hand. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You rejoiced in his witness, Jesus said. You rejoiced in the testimony of John, but you've totally missed the object that he was pointing to. You've missed the one he was talking about. You've missed, Jesus would say, you've missed me. I am the one he was talking about, but you've missed it. In fact, what we find for rejoice, we, we see that Psalm 132, verse 16, that same word for rejoice, there it's, it's, it's given to us as the faithful people shouting for joy. They were so excited. You put it all together, it's, it's an indictment against the religious authorities. When Jesus came, he reminds them of John's message. Friends, you, you like the message of the Messiah's coming, but when the Messiah appeared, it's a little bit different. He's not on his big war horse stallion or his chariot, but rather he's coming on a donkey. And rather when dealing with the Romans, like so many of them wanted that political movement, Jesus dealt with the hearts of the people. 
Now you're just meddling in our affairs. We don't like that. You see, when Jesus came, he overthrew their temple tables. He called them out of their sin. Friends, all of that to say, if you're looking for a soft Jesus to to, to endorse your lifestyle of sin and let you stay comfortable in your sin, you're looking to the wrong Messiah. He did say he has the authority to judge, and he will. If the Jesus you're following never picks up the chisel to do a little work on your heart and in your life to get rid of some of those calloused places of your heart that are riddled with sin and darkened by sin, then you're following the wrong Jesus. He wants to make you more like him. And he's got to be able to do that work. And if he's not doing that work, you've got the wrong Messiah. John's message was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. John was a burning and shining lamp. Where are you on that spectrum? Are you burning and shining for Jesus? Perhaps our prayer should be like Jim Elliott, Lord, am I even ignitable? The second witness that Jesus gives is his work, the works that he had come to do. If they don't believe John, the next witness is greater. They should have seen some of those works that Jesus had done up to this point. We look back at John chapter 3, and there you have the story of Nicodemus. And this Pharisee named Nicodemus completely, totally admits that Jesus came from God. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. They had seen the work that Jesus was doing, the miracles that he has performed. And though his miracles expressed his concern and his compassion for the needy, for those who were lame, for those who were blind, those who had leprosy, Those are not the biggest issues we have. The biggest issues we have are eternal issues. His miracles, Matt Carter said, aren't motivated solely by compassion for the sick or love for the dying. They are signs pointing people to a right understanding of who Jesus is. It was never about the healing. It was never about the miracles. They all point to the one who sent him. They testify to who Jesus really is. All of these signs serve to point people to his divine power and glory for the Father. These ultimately are the Father's works because Jesus is doing what the Father is doing. Jesus and the Father are one. This is a part of his mission. He also has mission credibility. But the coming Messiah would be marked by these miracles. They would be marked by these signs. And when John the baptizer was arrested and put into prison, Jesus sent good news to him, as recorded in Matthew chapter 11. You tell John the the blind are receiving their sight, the mute are speaking, the lame are healed. John knew then that Jesus was the one for sure. But the gospel writer of John John the evangelizer, he recorded seven signs in his gospel, seven miracles, three of which that have already been covered by the time you get to chapter five. But the first one's John chapter two, water into wine. Demonstrated that Jesus had the power to create that which is good. Very similar to creation. In fact, would help the Jews remember creation. 
In John chapter 4, the official son is healed. It demonstrated that Jesus didn't have to be present in the room in order to heal someone. He acted that one out from a distance away. Healing at the pool of Bethesda, John chapter 5, right at the beginning of this, demonstrated that Jesus had the power to heal and act independently of someone's faith. John chapter 6, feeding the 5,000 plus, demonstrated there that Jesus had the power to provide food in overabundance, but it also hints that Jesus being the bread of life, which for the Jews, they would have remembered the manna, the story of the manna in the wilderness, how God provided day after day after day after day. John chapter 6 also captures where Jesus walks on water, demonstrates there that Jesus has the power to control nature and that he can empower his disciples to do what is normally impossible. John chapter 9, healing the man that was born blind. That's a great story. Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? Demonstrated that Jesus had the power to give vision to the blind, but it also gives sight to a greater gift of spiritual sight that he would open up the eyes of the hearts of the people. The last, the seventh one is perhaps the most spectacular, the raising of Lazarus, calling Lazarus from the grave in John chapter 11. There we learn that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that he has, the, that he has been given and he has the power to bring life from death. Those are the works of Jesus. The third witness is the testimony of God the Father himself. Jesus then turned to the witness that is behind all the others in John chapter 5, the Father who sent him. Jesus focused on his will and his word. This is both past and present. In the past, Jesus had acted in the Father's will, and in the present, he's acting in the Father's will. But what he sees the Father doing and what the Father has done, if you go back and look all throughout the Old Testament at all of redemptive history, You can see God at work bringing time to this moment when Jesus came. When the fullness of time came, it is now at this moment that he is here. But you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where there is the promise of the snake-crushing Redeemer who will crush the head of the serpent. From that moment forward, God is working and orchestrating the story to bring forth his son, to send his son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. But there's one big problem with God's testimony. It's not his problem. It's the people's problem. They didn't receive his testimony. They didn't listen. You look at, first off, Jesus says, you've never heard his voice. Verse 37, his voice you have never heard. Not like Moses on Sinai. But in listening to Jesus, they failed to recognize they were listening to the voice of God. Second, he says they had not seen his face or his form. Unlike Jacob, who wrestled with God, they refused to see God in the Son. Verse uh, verse 18 of John chapter 1. Just turn back there quickly. Let me read that for you. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus has made him known to us. But they totally missed it. Third, Jesus says, God's word doesn't dwell in you, unlike Joshua. Joshua, when he was commissioned in Joshua chapter 1, God said, this book of the law shall be, shall not depart from your heart and shall be on your lips. Shall be in your mouth. Shall meditate it on it day and night. But they, Jesus is saying, the word of God doesn't dwell in you. 
The psalmist of 119, verse 11, he says there that we hide his word in our hearts that we would not sin against God, and yet his, this people, they haven't done that. They're not dwelling on the word of God. They're searching, they're searching for it, which we'll get to the next witness in a moment. But there are moments even when Jesus is here at his baptism, the father looks down and he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. On the transfiguration, when Jesus is there, his three disciples are with him. There is the voice of God again. Peter testifies to it in 2 Peter chapter 1, and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, we ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. It wasn't just Peter. Oh, Peter was by himself. No, no, there are three witnesses to that. They've got the witnesses covered. John talks about it. He, he claims, that he, he knows the same thing that Peter's talking about, what happened on that mountain. But these guys have rejected the very word of God in rejecting Jesus. Their hearts were closed to the truth. The next witness is the witness of Scripture, the testimony of the Scriptures. This is the one place where they have failed to grasp God's truth as it's been so clearly made known to them. It's their approach to the scriptures. Jesus says, you pour over the scriptures. That's the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. But the verb there for pour, you, you search very strong. Right? They didn't have Google back then. But I mean, if they had, they, perhaps they would have been typing it in and seeing what the machine pulled up. But they're diligently searching the scriptures. But in searching so hard, they totally missed him. They go to great lengths to study the ancient text. Because in the text, they think they're going to find eternal life. And while they're looking in the law, they're looking for salvation there. They totally miss the one who came to fulfill the law. You see, in the Old Testament, there's two main themes. One, that mankind is hopelessly lost and rebellious against God, totally unable to save himself. From the very beginning in the garden, we see that. And when we look at some of those Old Testament heroes of the faith, Yes, they, they were faithful, but man, were they messed up just like us. Right after the flood, Noah, he got drunk. <clears throat> after the water subsided, and his family sinned big time, as did he, big time. Abraham, the friend of God, right? He didn't trust God enough to wait for a legitimate son. Moses led, God, led God's people out of slavery into the promised land. But he couldn't enter the promised land because of his own disobedience. David, ooh, yes, King David, woo -hoo, a man after God's own heart. Yes, we should look at David's life, but then we'll find that he was an adulterer and a murderer too. You see, all of the heroes of the Old Testament, none of them were adequate enough. They'd all stumbled just like we all stumble. They'd all sinned and missed, missed the mark just like we have all sinned and missed the mark. We need to see that they are not what we needed in a Savior. The people in Jesus' day needed to see that Abraham was not their Savior. Moses was not their Savior. But they all point to the one who is greater. They all point to the one who is coming, who is greater. And that is the second theme, is that God will send a Savior. And the Old Testament describes in great detail the one whom God will send. And this is the moment. From the garden, through the ark... Through the Red Sea, around the walls of Jericho, through exile, the rebuilding of the wall with Nehemiah, 
The weeping prophet Jeremiah, Isaiah, all of those folks all point to the one who was to come. The promised seed, the lion of Judah, the son of man, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the Passover lamb, Emmanuel, God with us, prince of peace, mighty God, everlasting father. He, the one who is to come, is the Messiah. These scriptures describe the one who was to come, but these scribes and religious leaders sought to know the word of God, but they did not know the God of the word. They missed him. And what they were seeking in the scriptures was standing and speaking directly to them at this moment, and they totally missed it because they were looking for the wrong reasons. Here's the first reason why they missed it, the attitude of their heart towards scripture. When we come to the word of God, we've got to be open and soft to what he's got to say to us. But here's what it is. They love the knowledge of the scripture more than they love God. Hey, you can recite the Ten Commandments and still go to hell. You can know the story of the flood frontwards and backwards and still go to hell. You can know the gospel. And if you don't believe in Christ, if you have not trusted in him, your eternal destiny is hell. Because it's not about knowledge. It's about where your heart is. If we love knowledge of Scripture more than we love God, the God of the Scripture, even though the Scripture says love God above all else, that's what Jesus said to him. You search the Scriptures because you think in them you will have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me, pointing us to Jesus. The second reason why they missed it is that their, their interests were worldly. Look at verse 43 of John chapter 5. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. The agenda of the Father, and now Jesus' agenda, because the Father has sent, me, has sent Jesus, didn't line up with the leadership of Israel. National pride and victory over Rome was not a concern for Jesus. Other messiahs had come along with full support from the Pharisees shortly after Jesus ascended back into heaven, and they were defeated, and they did not come back to life on the third day. It's a sad story. They had the wrong interest. They also had the wrong motive, because they searched the scriptures to be exalted by other men. Look at verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So if they picked the right Messiah, we're going to get on this guy. We're on his bandwagon because if he's the right one, guess who's going to get the glory? Be who picked the religious leader. Attitude, interest, and motives all placed in the wrong Messiah will starve your soul. Attitudes, interests, and motives placed in the wrong gospel will starve your soul. To the point that you will miss the true Messiah. Because verse 40, Jesus said, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Friends, it's always about our heart. The last testimony is the testimony of Moses. It's a reference to the law. And Moses himself, they loved Moses. I mean, who doesn't love watching the Ten Commandments at Easter, even though it really has nothing to do with the resurrection story? Charlton Heston aging through the movie and his big staff. But this last one, though, falls, falls in lines with the scriptures. But 
They thought much of Moses. He authored the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of the law. He's the one that penned the law. He's the one that Jesus referenced in regards to having more than one witness, right? Moses is the one that penned that law for the Lord back in Deuteronomy chapter 19. But he says, if you, don't, if you won't even believe Moses who wrote about me, what hope do you have? Because the ultimate question is always, what are you going to do with Jesus? That's where we draw the line. What are you going to do with Jesus? The witnesses that he's presented all speak to him. The eyewitness account of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the apostles as captured in the New Testament, it all works together. It doesn't contradict itself. It's all there. What are you going to do with Jesus? Because nothing else in this life, nothing in your life right now that is in disarray will ever be solved or ever be fixed short of a relationship with Jesus. Your marriage, your family, your children, your work, all of it. It's not going to fix itself until you turn your life to Jesus because then you begin to see life through his eyes. You begin to see that person who's constantly hurting you through the eyes of Jesus, the one who died for him. You begin to see life with grace and mercy. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, it's a true statement. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come at the judgment, but has passed from death into life. All the witnesses point to Jesus. For you, what ultimately matters right now in this holy moment is this. What do you make of Jesus? Will you trust him or not? Will you turn away and dismiss him? Or will you turn to him and trust him? Aaron Schust, who is a Christian artist, musician, recorded a song about 15 years ago entitled, My Savior, My God. What I learned this week was that is actually an old hymn from the 1800s that he re-recorded. But I love the lyrics of this song. It says this, I am not skilled to understand what God has willed, what God has planned. I only know at his right hand is one who is my savior. I take him at his word and deed. Christ died for sinners, this I read. For in my heart I find a need of him to be my savior. That he should leave his place on high and come for sinful man to die. You count it strange, so once did I, before I knew my savior. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you in the journey and the simple pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus.